All right, so um, yes, no, let's see, Friday night, my daughter, my oldest daughter and I, we um, went out into the big city of Omaha to look for some wings, some delicious wings to bring home because we were going to sample them before Sunday night, tonight, right? So we went to the restaurant and we went there and it was super busy, so we decided to leave and we went back to the one that was closer to our house and we um, got out and we proceeded to enter into the restaurant and there was a gentleman there who opened the door for my beautiful daughter and I walked in after her and as she was opening up the inside door to get into the restaurant uh, and I was, you know how guys is just kind of awkwardly, you know, look and thank you for opening the door for me and you, you go or I'm going to go or all that kind of awkward stuff. But anyway, I went through and then he proceeded to open his mouth and say something to me. And it went along the lines of this. Well, you need to know, first of all, that I was um, wearing my Cabela's hat, which I'm not a hunter or fisher, but my son-in-law gave this to me, so I wear it. When I'm having a bad hair day, I just wear a hat. <laughs> so I'm wearing my Cabela's hat, and um, he goes, well, it's a good thing that you're wearing that Cabela's hat and not this bleep Bass Pro Shop hat. <laughs> and, and I'm going, what? <laughs> and I proceed, you know how you, when somebody says something to you, and it just kind of goes off the blue, and you just... I guess I just nervous laughed and I proceeded to walk in. And he goes, yeah, because if you were, I was going to bleep, punch you in the mouth. <laughs> I'm going, really? I didn't say that, but I was thinking that. And then he just walked off and sat down. And, and if you would have taken a picture of my face, you would have seen shock and bewilderment because that was the last thing that I would have expected from that guy. I would have expected something like, hey, cold outside, or great restaurant, or how about them Huskers, or anything like that, or hey, even hello, or nice hat. But no, <laughs> if you would have been wearing a Bass Pro Shop hat, I would have popped you in the mouth. And then I began to think, well, what would, what would I have done if that would have happened? And then I'm thinking, well... I would have eluded his punch and I would have <laughs> dove into him and just steamrolled him into the window or wall or whatever it was and then grabbed his wrist and twisted it around behind his back and said, mercy. Oh, you know, all those kind of things. And then, yeah, and then, I, then reality set in and go, no way, I'd have been on the floor in the hospital with a bloody nose. Anyway, why do I tell you that? Well, <laughs> It's because I think there's a lot of times in our life when um, we encounter things that we go, what? And it shocks us, right? And there's amazement on our voice. And it happens many, many times. And it happened a lot when Jesus walked on this earth. It happened a lot when he began his public ministry. He began to do things that I'm sure people were going, what are, what are you doing? Who are you? And just completely amazed at what was going on. And we're going to look at 
And we're going to look at a story today in the book of Luke, and we're going to be in chapter 7, and we're going to look at the last verses in chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. And it's a story that um, we know about if we've read, you know, the other Gospels that, that Matthew talks about the greatest commandment is to love our God. And a lot of times we don't know what that looks like. And Luke is going to give us this picture of what that looks like, and, and it's going to shock us. I think we're going to be amazed, just as Simon, who's the other main character in that story, was shocked and amazed. And so that's where we're headed this morning. And so with that, let me just pray, and then we're going to dive right in. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, I thank you for this group of people. I thank you that we get to do life together, God, and I pray uh, that your spirit will be here, God, that you would um, help us as we dive into this, this book of Luke, chapter 7, and this great, great story. God, help us to have a clear mind and a willing heart, I mean, a receptive heart, God, and to be obedient to your truth. Help us to be different um, as we walk away this morning, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to encounter a principle that Jesus is going to give us in this story that, um, that when we say yes to him, there's something that needs to, that something is going to happen or should happen in our life that is going to change the direction of our life. It's going to radically change how I think. It's radically going to change what I do how I interact with people, my spouse, my children, my extended family, the people I work with, the people that are in my neighborhood, and the people that I casually meet as I go out and do my business. If, if we understand this principle and if we um, begin to realize the basis for it and then begin to apply it in our life, it, will, it should radically change our direction in what we do in our life. And so we are in the middle of a series in the book of Luke, and we have gone through six chapters. And if you recall, the book of Luke is in the middle of, or is one of four books in the New Testament. The Bible is divided into two halves, right? The Old Testament and the New Testament. And there's these first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that describe the birth and the life of Jesus. And so we're in the book of Luke, the longest of the, of the four, and it's written by Luke, and he wrote the other, another book called Acts. And those two together comprise about 27, 28% of the New Testament. And so a significant amount, in fact, the largest amount by one writer, and then Paul is next. And so we should pay attention to what Luke is writing, right? And so he begins to, again, dive into what um, Jesus is all about and, and takes that fully God part and, and again, val validates that, but he also takes the fully human part and expands on it more than any of the other gospel writers do. And so we get this picture of his humanity um, from the book of Luke, and, it, and it's, it is pretty cool. And so he began his ministry at age 30, and... Um, he begins to do all of these miracles, and he begins to um, cast out 
evil spirits, and he begins to just teach in the different synagogues as he's walking from village to village, and he begins his public ministry. And it's interesting that another characteristic of the book of Luke is that he, more than any other of the gospel writers, focuses a lot or really um, uses women um, or highlights women in the different stories and the different events in Jesus' life. So let's just look at the list of, um, that are in all the Gospels, but also are unique to the book of Luke. We have Elizabeth in, in the first chapter. We have Mary also in the first chapter. We have Anna, the prophetess. We have um, Peter's mother-in-law, who um, Jesus healed, or, yes, from the fever. We have the widow of Nain. We have a sinful woman, that which we're going to talk about today. We have women who minister, which is in chapter 8. We have the hemorrhaging woman. Mary and Martha, the crippled woman, parable of the woman with the lost coin, parable of the widow and judge, the widow's might, woman at the crucifixion, woman at the tomb, and report of women at the tomb as well. And so there's this an incredible list of um, where women are at the center of Jesus' teaching and illustrations. And it's very interesting to me that, that he does that, and Luke really expands on that. And probably a lot of why maybe he did that is because women weren't, um, they were viewed less than um, in that culture. And, and he begins to write, not only we see in the beginning of chapter 7 where he heal, uh, heals a, um, um, a Greek uh, ruler's servant. And so from that story, he was amazed, right? Only twice in the New Testament where it says that Jesus was amazed. And this was one of them in the book, in the verse of, first part of chapter 7. And um, he heals that servant and he says, this man has great faith and he's not part of the religious Jewish culture. And so we see that. And so that lends us to believe that Jesus is including Right, a broad spectrum of people, and we see in his in his healings and in, in casting out of evil spirits that he's very much in tune with the outcast, which the marginalized, which the poor, and then not only that, but with this list and the different things that he includes women in, he's also letting us know that women are important, right? That there's no gender inequality here. And he includes all, and he says that they can play a significant part in the kingdom of God. And I think that's just pretty darn cool. And so we're going to look at one of those stories today in, the cha- in chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. So get out your Bibles, please, if you have them with you, or if you have it on your phone or whatever device you might have. And I want you to follow along um, in whichever version you're going to read But today, I'm not going to read from a specific version. I'm going to um, read it more like a story. And I found this, and and then I'm going to add my own twist to it. But I want to read it to you, and you can follow along in your Bible, and then we're going to talk about some lessons that we can learn from this. So let's turn to Luke chapter 7. And um, this is a story that, that Luke tells about this man named Simon, who is a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were um, a very religious people, and they, um, I won't say much more about that, but they were just a religious people, a religious group, and Simon was 
a part of that group of people. And so he invited Jesus to come um, eat a meal with him. And it was a public meal, so the doors would have been open so that in that culture that other people could just walk in because they would give the opportunity to hear whatever is going on with the invited guests. And so that's kind of how that works and how we can see why this woman did what she did in the story. So Simon had the, um, the Holy One of Israel in his house, reclining at his table. The prophet that Moses had foretold was sharing dinner with him. The Lord of glory, the resurrection and the life, was speaking with him face to face that he would have known about in the Old Testament writings. The great climatic moment of history he claimed to be living for had arrived. And it should have been a deliriously wonderful, breathtaking honor for Simon to host the Messiah in his house. But Simon was not amazed. As he looked at Jesus, all he saw was a dusty Nazarene um, whose claims could be interpreted as well delusional, right? We remember from the earlier chapters that nothing good comes from Nazareth. As Jesus' feet were still dirty, offering foot washing to guests had become a deeply ingrained custom for Near Eastern people for thousands of years. And so to not offer was to dishonor one's guests. It's not likely that Simon simply forgot to do that. But Jesus showed no sign of offense, and with the, the meal on the table, superficial pleasantries were exchanged, and a few polite questions were asked, just like any other meal um, before you get to the meat of everything. Suddenly, all eyes were focused on, or focused on Jesus or facing him, and they were filled with this confused concern um, on their faces. And so Jesus looked back, and there was a woman who was standing near him and clearly not part of the household. And she was looking intensely at him, cradling a small jar in her hands. She began to sob and dropped to her knees, and as her tears flowed, she leaned over and let them drop on Jesus' soiled feet and wiped them off, along with the dirt with her hair. Then she kissed Jesus' feet. There were gasps, there were murmurs around the table. This woman had a reputation known to all the local guests. It was improper even to speak openly about what had given her this reputation. She was simply called a sinner. Everyone knew what was packed into that word, so everyone was mortified by her clearly inappropriate, even uncomfortably intimate contact, except, apparently, Jesus. He did not seem shocked, and he did nothing to stop her. An alarmed servant moved toward the woman, but Simon waved him off. This was a revealing moment, and he was going to milk it for all it's worth. As Simon watched the woman pour fragrant oil from her jar on Jesus' feet, he felt both contempt and pleasure. His appraisal of Jesus was being vindicated right before his eyes. 
Nothing spoke more eloquently of the falseness of this so-called prophet than his stunning lack of discernment regarding this immoral woman. No holy man would have let her pollute him with her touch. He began to rehearse what he would report to the council. Simon, I have something to say to you. Jesus' words snapped Simon's attention back. And he goes, say it, teacher. And then Jesus begins to share this parable. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. To put that in context, one denarii was a, um, uh, a soldier's wage per day. And so it's kind of, and that would be very typical. And so 365 denarii for the year. And so that's, for the 500, that's about a year and a half, and the 50 is um, a little more than a month, right? To put that in perspective, the, um, the, the elite, the king, they made like, I think it was like 150,000 denarii a, a year. And so there's quite a disparage here, right? And so this is, at best, middle class, what we're talking about. But there's this, this huge debt that's going on that it's going to be really hard for them to pay. And so that's... The backstory, and so then he says, um, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, "You you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered... Your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, which was the custom, right, of greeting during that time. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with this very expensive perfume, this ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Then looking back penetratingly into Simon's eyes, Jesus said, but he was forgiven little, loves little. And there was a shocked silence in the air. Because they knew that he was speaking to them. And then Jesus turned to the woman and said this, your sins are forgiven, reassuring her again, and your faith has saved you, now go in peace. Live your life in peace, knowing that you are, um, your sins are forgiven, your life has been changed, And God has you in his grasp, and you are his forever. I mean, just an incredible, incredible picture that Luke has now described to us. And so I want to talk about five things that we can learn um, from this interaction between Jesus and Simon and the what we'll call the sinful woman. And the first is this, is that it takes humility to come to Jesus. We're seeing a pattern as we go through the book of Luke as we talk about the different stories, we're seeing this pattern that when people who come to Jesus and they respond to him, there's this overwhelming sense of, 
Um, I'm not worthy, right? We see that in Peter when we talked about him in, in the boat and the story of the fish and them calling to be his disciple. There's this overwhelming sense of um, I'm not worthy and, and I need you as a savior. And we see that in the other stories of the people that encounter him and he heals them and all that kind of thing. And we see it here with this sinful woman. There, there's this overwhelming sense of that I'm not worthy and I'm coming to you in humility. And when we need to come to Christ, we need to come to him in humility, recognizing, right, our sin. So let's look at the two people. Let's look at Simon, who was part of a Pharisee group, and he um, was very, um, um, he's a suspect, uh, not, um, let's see, how do I say this? He was critical, not critical, yeah, he was critical of Jesus, but he also was, um, I can't say this, that he is a he's suspect of Jesus. Right, there we go, there we go. Whew. Did that feel uncomfortable? Right? So he was um, just thinking that, I don't know about this guy. He's been doing a lot of great things, but I just don't know about him. And these claims that he's making, I don't know. And so I'm just going to invite him in, right, and, and figure out what's going on with Christ and with Jesus. And so he invites him to this meal. And his behavior is just throwing him off. You know, no respected man in this religious group would ever, ever make contact with a person, a sinful person, let alone a sinful woman. They wouldn't talk to them, they wouldn't get them come near them, and they certainly wouldn't do what Jesus, um, what was being done in this little scene. Simon addresses him respectfully, but you could tell that there's skepticism there. So what do you imagine Simon to be like? I want you just to think with me. Can, can you say something back to me? What do you think Simon is like? Proud. And he's arrogant. Smug. Confused. Self-assured. Yeah, all those things are I would I would agree with you and and just very confident, right? Very confident of what he's been trained in and, and not willing, he's blinders on his eyes and is not willing to think beyond that. Very self-assured, right? We go to the sinful woman and we see her in this episode that her actions speak louder than her words. And it's, to me, that's, there's great irony in that, in the sense that in that near ancient culture, that women were to be seen and not heard. And here we have this parable that says, all right, if that's how you're going to be, then we're going to use this woman who's not going to say anything. She's going to be seen, but she's going to probably give you one of the most powerful pictures of what it means to love me. I just think that's incredible, amazing, and the irony there is just awesome. That's just what our Jesus does. So here, um, she is a sinner, and the exact nature of that is not spelled out. We don't know exactly what that looked like, but most think that she was probably a prostitute of that, but 
we don't know for sure, but something, right, that everybody knew and it was causing her to have a reputation. And so what do you think this sinful woman was like? We describe, um, we describe Simon. Now, what do you think, knowing, reading the story and, and just imagining what she must have been like, what, what do you think were some of her qualities? Is this harder? Yeah, please talk. Just shout back to me. Thankful. Broken. Insecure. There's some hurt. There's pain. There's shame. What's that? Courageous. From some guilt. This is all those things, right? It was all those things that probably were a part of her story. And at the center of this is Jesus. And, and Simon is skeptical of Jesus, and he's nervous about the woman because of what she's doing. And it just, I mean, let's just be honest, right? I mean, we were kind of somewhat joking because we had that picture up, and, and one of the band members said, that just, that just looks awkward, and it does, right? When we read that story, and if you can just imagine what that must have been like, I mean, we just don't do that today, but it, and they didn't do that then, but just imagine what that must have been like. Jesus is reclining at the table, and they're doing the whole meal and that kind of thing, and there's this woman that comes up and stands behind him, and, and the scriptures say that she was crying. And, and the word that's used there is not just these gentle tears. It's like she's sobbing. She's crying. It, the word is used for like, it's, it's rain. It's a shower of rain. And so there, she must have just been sobbing loudly and it, it falls on Jesus' feet, the tears. And, and the tense of the, of the word there in that verse did, um, implies that it was a slow process and, and it was a continual. So there was crying, sobbing, wetting of his feet, she bows down and undoes her hair, which some would say is in, in, incredibly immodest, and begins to wipe his feet with her hair, the mixture of the tears and the dirt. And she wipes that, such a humiliating act. And then she goes even further and begins to Kiss his feet. I mean, that's awkward at best. But apparently, Jesus doesn't care. Luke describes this in great detail. And we begin to see that there's this marked difference between Simon and the sinful woman. And then what's going to happen with all of that? And we begin to realize that those who come to Jesus in humility, that those who come to him, they recognize their sin and their need for a savior is the one that God is going to honor. And most commentators believe that she had a previous encounter with Jesus and that she had 
already been forgiven of her sins and she had heard that he was there and she came and it's probably a mixture of this incredible, overwhelming joy that she had of being with Jesus, but also this overwhelming sense of thankfulness for what he has done. And so I think that was all of that that went into that encounter, just her overwhelming sense of this is what I've been saved from. And I don't know what else to do, but it's just going to come out of me in tears. And I'm just going to bow down. And I don't care what anybody thinks about me. All I know is that Jesus loved me for who I am. And he has forgiven my sins. And he tells me that my faith has saved me and I can go now in peace. And I just want to say love and gratitude. It takes faith to become a son or daughter. It takes faith to become a son and daughter. It takes faith to believe who God is and what he's done and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And then not only that, but then who I become in Christ when I place my faith in him. It takes faith, all of that. It takes faith to believe that. And that's what she did. And then it takes faith to continue to trust in those things on a daily basis to fight that battle. And then what we begin to see is what emerges out of that, that it takes humility and it takes faith. What emerges out of that when you become a son, when you become a daughter, is that there's this love that flows out of you because you're just overwhelmed again by how God can love you and all of your mess just the way you are, and he can see what, and I think this is why Jesus, is a great lesson for us, that Jesus walked this earth, and he was able to interact with people who were labeled sinners, and the poor, and the messy, because he could see what the potential that they had when Christ, or when when God would, would, um, when they would place their faith in Jesus, or place their faith in God, their life will be transformed, and he, he sees that part and not this part. And that's how he can love right them right where they are, because he doesn't see this necessarily. He sees what could be. It's such a great lesson for you and I. So what emerges out of that is love, and then that begins to change the direction of our life. Right? It changed her direction. So much so that she decided it would be a good thing to walk into this, to this meal where there's a bunch of people and to do what she did. It was humiliating. And my wife is right. It was incredibly courageous. And I believe that's what also comes into our life is that when we understand and we understand this basis that we begin to have courage and courage to do things that people will look at and go, I don't know. And we'll say yes to that. It's interesting that another thing that comes out of this, because Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And, And that begins to, this dialogue, right, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious Right, and they're going, 
I mean, only God can do that. And so what you're saying, Jesus, is that you are on the same level of God. And so now we begin this, this um, uh, theological thing that begins to happen in, in this conversation about, all right, Jesus is claiming that he's on the same level of God because he's forgiving sins. And so we begin to see this point of where we have, um, it's impossible to be neutral about Jesus. Either one is like the Pharisee or one is like the sinful woman. I don't know if I'm going to be able to type this. Yeah, yes, I will. And so we have the Pharisee over here. Whoops. And the sinful woman over here. And, and the cross represents Jesus. And, and we see this dividing line. It's impossible between, to be neutral about him. Because you're either going to be something along this continuum of a Pharisee being a skeptic, being doubtful. I'm not sure you're really who you say you are. Can you really do what you're saying you can do? I don't know if you're God or if you're not God. And this whole thing, you're either this or you're going to be this person who, along this continuum who says, I'm overwhelmed with my sinfulness. I know I need a Savior. I know I can't do anything to save me. And you're the one who's saying that you can. And so I'm going to put my faith and trust in you. And then I'm going to keep growing to be more like God. You just can't be neutral here. You're either here or you're there. And then this is the last thing that I want to get to. Because this is what it moves to. This is that thing that I said, this principle that Jesus gets at. That I believe that the sinful woman lived in her life. And what he wants each one of us to do in our life. And it's this, to love with the same love with which you've been loved. Jesus Christ loved you. So much so that he came on this earth as a human baby. Lived this perfect life. All these human things that you and I experienced, he experienced. He was obedient to his heavenly father. Obedient to to go to the cross, to die for you and I, so that his righteousness, right, so that his righteousness could be credited to us, knowing that there's nothing that I could do to save me. That was the amount of love that he gave for you. And all he's saying here is that I want you now to love with the same love with which you've been loved. Can you just say that with me? Love with the same love with which you've been loved. Let's try it again. Love. Great, let's try it again. Love. So I want you to be annoying today. I want you to tell your family, your spouse, hey, love with the same love with which you've been loved. If you can say that quickly, I don't know. Right? But just rehearse that with yourself. Rehearse that over and over and over and over again because I think that needs to be our mantra here. I don't think. I know that needs to be our mantra here at Finding Life Church. It needs to be my mantra. It needs to be your mantra if you are a son or daughter of Jesus. Because I believe that we can't really help people with objective objections or they're, they're skeptical about Christianity, about Jesus, um, 
We can't really begin to help answer those kind of questions if we are not going to love them, provide for them a safe space for them to, just like the sinful woman came to Christ with no strings attached, and she, um, in all of her messiness, and Jesus says, welcome, come. This is what I'm teaching, and this is what it is. And she goes, I'm, I love that, and I'm placing my faith in you. Well, if we can't love in that same way, and I believe that we can because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us and we are in Christ. And so that same power that raised Christ from the dead is in us and we can love that way. If we're not going to do that, then it's going to be really hard for someone to really get over whatever questions they may have about Christianity. Because if you don't believe it and you don't live it, then I don't want to either. And I think that's where we need to go. I wonder if we really are a people who regularly fear or hear about the grace and forgiveness of Jesus, reaching out in love and accepting us, all the while failing to let it move us into action when God puts someone in my life. I think it's possible to profess Christ and to know his love Deeply and to open up our arms and welcome all with no judgment and no preconceived ideas about what's going on and just saying, I can see the potential in you because of Christ and I'm choosing to believe this and not this over here and I'm just going to love you. I'm just going to love you because I've been loved. So I'm just going to love you with the same love with which I've been loved. John Piper says that uh, Christ cancels sin in order to awaken love in our hearts. And this is what I want to finish with this morning. It's um, uh, It's a block of words from this book called Accidental Saints. And, um, I just want to read this because I thought when I read it, it just touched me to the core of who I am. And so I just want to end with this because we can do Sunday morning this hour, and, and, and we can do it well. But I think this invades what we do before and what we do after. So before that hour, half an hour, 45 minutes, when we're drinking coffee and water and donuts and whatever delicious things that the hospitality team brings to our palate, and it's been good. It's been good. <laughs> right? It has been. That part, we need to engage in, in, the, in the after part when we go out to lunch with somebody or whatever it might be. And then every other part of our week needs to be entangled with this. Love with the same love with which you've been loved. So let me read this, and then we'll finish with the song. My spirituality is most active, not in meditation, but in the moments when I realize God may have gotten something beautiful done through me despite the fact that I am an 
and they use a cuss word here, and when I am confronted by the mercy of the gospel so much that I cannot hate my enemies, and when I am unable to judge the sin of someone else, which, let's be honest, I love to do, because my own crap is too much in the way, and when I have to bear witness to another human being's suffering despite my desire to be left alone, and when I am forgiven by someone even though I don't deserve it, and my forgiver does this because he too is trapped by the gospel. And when traumatic things happen in the world, and I have nowhere to place them or make sense of them, and you can insert anything in there, what happens to you physically, emotionally, and I have nowhere to place them or, or I can't make sense of them, but what I do have is a group of people who gather with me every week, people who will mourn and pray with me over the devastation of something like a school shooting or whatever it is that's going on in your life that's devastating you right now. And when I end up, and when I end up changed by loving someone I'd never choose out of a catalog, but whom God sends my way to teach me about God's love. That, to me, is what it's all about. It's a group of people that don't really know what we're doing, honestly. But we're going to live our life loving with the same love with which we've been loved. And we're just going to figure this out together. And I am so glad that I've been able to do this with you guys. Thank you for praying for my family and me. Thank you for praying for the different families that are struggling right now. Thank you for reaching out with a meal train, for just loving them. And let's just keep doing this more and more and more. Let's just become really, 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 and I'm going to say it one more time, really good at hospitality. Amen? Amen. All right, let's worship together.